The title for this evening's talk is Dharma 101. You know, Dharma, as most of you know, is a term used to refer to the teachings of the Buddha, to spiritual teachings in general as well. And 101, of course, as many of you know, is a designation used in college undergraduate curriculum for any basic beginner's course. In other words, what I want, mean to do tonight is to go over the first principles, the ABC, of what the Buddha taught. Of course, I've done that before. I've covered this ground before. But today, I'm making this explicitly clear that I'm covering the basics of the Dharma. All right. The Buddha formulated his teachings with the very specific goal that of bringing an end to our suffering. That's what the teachers, uh, teachings are all about. And he was quite explicit about this pragmatism. This is what he said, and he said this over and over again. And this is one form this expression took. And it's from the scriptures, from the Buddhist Bible, if you wish. Once the blessed one, that is the Buddha, was staying at Kosambi in the Simsapa forest, the forest of Simsapa trees. Then, picking up a few Simsapa leaves in his hand, he asked the monks, what do you think, monks, which are more numerous, the few simsapa leaves in my hand or those over where, over where, over head over the whole forest? And the answer was obvious. The leaves that the blessed one has taken up in his hand are few, those of a head in the forest are far more numerous. And then the Buddha responds. In the same way, monks, the things I have directly known but I have not taught you are numerous, while the things I have taught you are few. And why haven't I taught those many things? because they are without benefit, irrelevant to the fundamentals of spiritual life, and do not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment. That's why you haven't touched them. And what have I taught? I have taught. This is suffering. I have taught this is the origin of suffering. I have taught this is a cessation of suffering, and I have taught this is a way leading to the cessation of suffering. And why, monks, have I taught these things? 
because they are beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of spiritual life, and lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, direct knowledge to enlightenment. This is why I have taught them. Therefore, an effort should be made to understand this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the way to the cessation of suffering. In keeping up with this position, every time the Buddha was asked philosophical questions, irrelevant to putting an end of suffering, he simply remained silent. He did so, for instance, when the monk Malyunkaputta asked him insistently whether the world is eternal. Instead of answering, the Buddha finally told him, Suppose, Malinkyaputta, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companion, his kinsman and relative, brought a surgeon to treat him. And assume that the mind would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and clan of the man who wounded me. That's a very Indian thing, you know. Uh, until I know whether the... Whoops. man who wounded me is tall or short or middle height, and goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And, and finally the Buddha says, all this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die of the poisoned arrow. So that's uh, how the Buddha is a pragmatist. And so, which other teachings that can lead to the pulling out of the poison arrow to the end of suffering? The Buddha articulated them until under the heading of the Four Noble Truths, which I've just quoted, but let me go over them again. Let's take one by one. The first noble truth says there is suffering. Here you may shoot back to me, but of course there's suffering. I mean, we all know that. Nothing new about that. So let's not make a big deal about it and get on with life. Eventually, things, let's hope, are likely to get better. Such a reply would actually highlight the nature of the problem. We have no stomach to look for into our suffering. No stomach at all. 
And when it hits us, we try to either deny it or shift our attention somewhere else, or both. But there is no effort to let the suffering speak to us, tell us what we need to know. Once again, contemporary culture has developed this strategy into an art form. You, you must have heard these motivational speakers that bombard us with exhortations to be positive, to look at our difficulties with a smile in the face, and to conquer the crisis basically by denial. The Buddha, on the other hand, asks us to look into it, to dive into our suffering, so that it can disclose to us where it comes from. And there comes the second noble truth that tells us what to look for. And what, friends, he says, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless fading away and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of, this, of the craving. Wait a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whoops. Wrong. So what is the source of this suffering? The Buddha says, what, friends, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for being, and even craving for not being. This is called the noble truth of the origin of suffering. Let me expand a little bit on this word craving. Craving actually, as the Buddha makes very clear elsewhere, is a two-stage process. It begins with just craving for this or that, wanting this or that, and then up as grasping, clinging to the object of desire. Uh, the Buddha has used craving or clinging to refer to the whole process. I myself in this talk, I'll refer to clinging, but knowing that it's a two-stage process. You first crave and then cling. But it, it runs more smoothly with my text. But the whole process is like this. There's craving, which leads to clinging, which leads to suffering. Implicit in this description of the second noble truth are situation in which the wanting is negative. So that it's not that you want to have something, but you want not to have something. 
So that in these cases, the process again is in the stages of aversion, don't want it, push away, and suffer. And again, when I say clinging, I'll refer to, I'll imply this situation too. Okay. Now, why is clinging a problem? Clinging is a problem because it comes, this, its source is an attempt to deny the flow of life attempt to deny the inevitable impermanence of things or anicca as it's called in the language of the Buddha an impermanence which includes of course our own impermanence it's a hopeless task when we when we engage in this denial of things, denial of change, we are doomed to fail. And this failure will bring about suffering, or even more suffering than we had before. And yet we persist. We fail to notice that our attempt to hold on to things is counter productive. It matters little what we cling to. All that matters is clinging as tightly as we can to whatever we deem desirable. No matter how vaguely desirable, in the hope to stop change. Such is the overwhelming tendency of our clinging minds. It is as if our minds were lined with Velcro. In fact, This Velcro mind is, in, of course, in charge of the rest of our body, including our hands. And, and so, again, it's as if our hands were wearing gloves made out of Velcro. And guess what? I brought one. You see, if you know me by now, I'm sure. Well, it's not totally made out of Velcro, but it's lined with Velcro. And it's going all over the world looking for things to cling to. And, uh, whoops, here's one. It's just an object, eh? Happens to be a piece of coral. It's attached. Now, I picked up this coral because I wanted to reenact a story about a, a poet that's very, very dear to me. 
I'm referring to the late uh, Don Pablo Neruda, a Chilean poet, Nobel Prize winner, etc., etc. Extraordinary writer. But besides that, at one time, he was a member of the Chilean parliament representing the Communist Party. This is at a time when the word communist, the word communist ignited fears like terrorists in some circles anyway. And it happened that the Chilean government outlawed the Communist Party and started jailing and, and torturing in all sorts of ways uh, um, some eminent members of the party. So Neruda was being sought and he escaped and he, you know, some of his comrades helped him cross the Andes by horseback and there they were through totally secretive path, very dangerous journey, and one of the horses carried the luggage, and the others were the horses they rode on. Uh, throughout this passage, Neruda was holding onto a bag, a burlap bag. And, and things were getting more and more difficult. Uh, the crossing was arduous. And uh, at some point, things got very rough. And one of the guys said uh, to Don Pablo, what are you carrying there? And he said, it's my collection of seashells. <laughs> they were pretty furious, I understand. And they said, and I, I heard this from close, close hands, people who were close to him, and they, they said, in, in, in Chilean slang, Dejese de lesera, Don Pablo. To stop all this silliness, Don Pablo. And took the polar bag and threw it down the precipice. But I understand too, of course, it, I understand both sides. The men who are risking their lives and protecting this, this guy who was not very good at horseback riding, etc., and yet hold, holding to this huge bag, it was his seashell collection. And on the other hand, Don Pablo. Because that's what the clinging man, mind does, you know. He had lost his country. He has lost his friends, his lover, his comrades, everything. And he was holding on to something that seemed to give him stability. Here a bit. Collections are particularly good at that. 
because they create the collector. I'm a collector. This is a special category of being. Oh, there you are. He, I, I hope he, Don Pablo learned. He learned many things in his life. It's very good. But, you know, we cling on to, to anything else. Let's see, what do I have? Ah, look. A girlfriend. <laughs> girlfriend like this? <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, it gives us a continuity, whatever. <laughs> she sticks very well. Dollar bill. Or hundreds of dollars. It gives us continuity. It makes us feel, all right, I may be no good or anything, but I have this much money in my bank account. By golly. Something. Solid. Particularly if you grow up in a country like this. Now, if you grow up in Argentina or in Zimbabwe, where inflation is a 1,000% a month or something like that, or what? Not anymore. It's different. And, of course, there's also you know, cigarettes, whatever. But that's an addiction. But addictions have the added virtue of giving us continuity. So, the point is simply to stop clinging, to stop trying to, to stop the flow of the world and of ourselves. <clears throat> because the Velcro creates the eye. The Buddha said very explicitly in a teaching known as dependent arising that the eye arises as a result of clinging. The eye of Pablo Neruda, for instance, of whatever, you know, of the person with a dollar in the bank, whatever. The, the Velcro works both ways. It attaches the object to the person, but it attaches the person and seems to solidify the person through that attachment. Ownership solidifies the owner. Of course, we can cling directly to, to ourselves. You know, a mirror. Uh, wow. <laughs> 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 oh, maybe we, we hire a painter to draw a portrait of us, even better, right? <laughs> However you, we do it. In sum, what? Velcroization, that's a word I've just coined, Velcroization seems to stop the flow of impermanence, at least as long as that fiction lasts. At least. And then when it ends, we're back into suffering. 
So much for the second truth of suffering. Yeah. Very hard. Anything stinks. <laughs> So, what is the third truth is how to end the suffering. Given that the suffering results from clinging, the end of suffering very obviously has to mean to stop clinging. Clinging to whatever, period. How do we do that? Take the velcro cloth off. Now, now I can hold on to things. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to hold on to things. But they're not sticking. That's the difference. Let me put it in the words of the Buddha. He says, what, friends, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It's a remainderless, fading away and ceasing, the giving up, the relinquishing, the letting go and rejecting of that craving. This is called the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. This is also called the third noble truth. Of course, there will be con there'll continue to be likes and dislikes. We may prefer hot or cold, spring or winter, day or night, or vice versa. But we would stop chasing after those preferences. We'd stop clinging because my hand is, doesn't have the glove anymore. I hold on to this, but I stop clinging to it. Stop proceeding as if the world could be ruled by the I, the me, the mine. The Buddha characterizes the end point of this process very beautifully. seen forms that delight the mind and having seen those that give no delight dispel the path of lust towards the delightful and do not soil the mind by thinking the other is displeasing to me having heard sounds both pleasant and raucous do not be enthralled with pleasant sound Dispel the course of hate towards the rockers, and do not soil the mind by thinking, this one is displeasing to me. In other words, don't make a big deal about it. You know, and he goes on with fragrant uh, scent and putrid stench and all that. When touched by pleasant contact, do not be enthralled. 
Do not tremble when touched by pain. Look evenly on both the pleasant and painful. He doesn't say deny the pleasant and painful. It means look evenly. Not drawn or repelled by anything. This doesn't mean that we should stop making any effort to steer our life or the life of others or the world or the political world in the appropriate directions, in the wholesome direction. For instance, the direction of bringing wars to an end, absolutely. But the motivation for that would be wisdom not attachment or repulsion. Because the compulsion of attachment or repulsion does nothing but enhance the fiefdom of I, me, mine. All right. All of this is easier said than done. I grant you that. It requires dropping strategies that are deeply embedded in our minds. It requires that our minds be retrained, or rather, untrained, that they, our minds be willing to both to be both willing and capable to shed the Velcro blows. How do we develop the ability to do that? And here is where the fourth noble truth comes in, which is a truth that spells out the necessary steps to decondition ourselves from clinging, from pushing away. And he says, in order to be able to do that, we need to clean up our act in eight different areas. So that's why the fourth noble truth is also known as the noble eightfold path. And these areas cover three categories, morality, wisdom, and meditation practice. For each of these areas, the Buddha asks us to be, to take the appropriate course, to be, to be skillful, to do the right thing, quote, unquote, right. Because it doesn't mean righteous in the sense of what's sanctioned as correct but rather the path that's appropriate to end suffering. Remember, his teachings are pragmatic. So all that counts is that which leads to the end of suffering. And I'll go over these eight areas rather quickly. I'll cover them in detail in other talks, but anyway. In the morality, morality category, there are three areas, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. 
in the wisdom category, there is two areas, right intention, right understanding. And in the category dealing with meditation practice, there are three areas, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. I'll, I'll say a few things about each area, but I don't want to overwhelm you. So, let me take morality, which includes, as I said, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right livelihood means right employment, you know, an issue that was more, more uh, applicable to the India of the Buddha. It's very hard to have right employment today. <laughs> Everything is so interconnected. I mean, I, for instance, uh, fine, was a university professor, I retired, and uh, my, I'm very glad that I get a pension. But when I look at the, where this pension fund has been invested, <laughs> it's not a, a pretty thing to look at, you know. Anyway. Um, take right speech, for instance. It's important that we abide by the dictates of our conscience there, very important. Otherwise, we, we get tangled up in inner conflict because we say one thing, but we know it's, it's, it's not right, it's not true, or it's not appropriate. And even if it doesn't hurt anybody else, it hurts us. But then again, there's also the times when what we say hurts others and so breaks our harmony with others and uh, triggers conflict. Take a, a little peek at Raquel to acknowledge <laughs> that sometimes I say things that trigger conflict, not very often. <laughs> Um, in fact, within this retreat, as we know, we abide by five precepts. Uh, I'll go over them quickly, just as a reminder of uh, the behavior that's appropriate for this retreat. One of them is right speech, which means basically not speaking, of course. Um, the other is no killing, refers to bugs, of course, things like that. No stealing, that's pretty obvious. Not indulging in sexual activities, that may not be obvious at all, simply it uh, is not the place to do it, for our own sake and for the sake of others. Just as it's not the place to speak, although it's okay to speak. And finally, not taking intoxicants. But anyway, there's um, right speak and right action in, implied in those five precepts. The second category is wisdom and includes 
right intention, right understanding. The more we move in the direction that will make us free, the more we need to have the intention and the motivation to do so, and an understanding of what's involved. Which, in the metaphor I've been using, it implies largely the getting rid of the Velcro gloves. Teacher Ajahn Chah, a Thai teacher of quite a significant, died some time ago. He said famously, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. But how do we cultivate this uh, wisdom? The answer is through meditation, through really being aware of what is it that we are doing. And it covers Three areas, as I said before, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. But what, again, what makes it right? This particular case, the Buddha has drawn a, a comparison between, say, right effort, for instance, and the tuning of a string instrument a lute, it was in, in his case, or equivalent, the Indian equivalent of a lute. He says, if the strings are too loose, no sound at all comes out. If they are too, too tight, there'll be a, the wrong kind of sound, a shrill sound or whatever will come out. We just have to find the right tension. The same thing with the practice, as you notice. If you fail to focus, to put some tension into your effort, then the mind will go all over the place. And if you overreach and tense the mind too much, if you put, make so much effort that we are practically grinding our teeth in order to be present, forget it, because all our energy and attention will be spent in, in increasing the effort. Right effort lies somewhere in between the two between the too loose and too tight, 
so that we can bring the mind to a state of concentration. And again, the degree of concentration will vary particularly according to the stage in the practice we are in. At the beginning of a practice we have to invite quite a, a one-pointed concentration of the mind, as I will say, in, in giving instructions, and then eventually it's possible to remain fully concentrated, fully present, and yet with a focus open. And the, the last uh, um, aspect of this category is mindfulness. Is mindfulness is inviting the mind to explore our experience. Not in the sense of being all over the place, but in the sense of being totally present with whatever experience we are experiencing at each moment. So, I've covered a wide spectrum of things, but uh, that's all I need to say about this Four Noble Truth now. Which remember, first one, there's suffering. Second, the source of suffering. The cause of suffering is clinging. Third, the end of suffering is the end of clinging. And finally, how do we do that? How do we train the mind through, through wisdom and mindfulness? Let me go back for a moment to the title of this talk. Uh, you, you probably notice that this Dharma 101 title is, is sort of problematic. Of course, I've said what I thought it was useful to say about the essence of the Dharma, of the teachings of the Buddha. But I could not, have not and could not deliver. Because the types of answers <coughs> to the question, what is the Dharma, are not the types of answers that can help you fill in um, a quiz answering true or false. Uh, it's not that I can add to your store of knowledge in any way. All I can do, and all the Buddha wanted to do, is point the way for each one of us to find the answers for themselves. This in discovering the self, the answers for ourselves. 
that, that we can put an end to suffering. I've been trying to, to follow the same path as the Buddha in, in teaching and, and just like him I, I would uh, suggest that the implementation of the teachings that the, the basis of the teaching is to start along this path ourselves. And in order to move from the place where we are stuck, all we have to do is take this love, throw it away. Now, having, if you are willing to do that, If you are willing to explore, or insofar as we are willing to explore without clinging to this, or clinging to that, or wanting to this, this to be this way, or wanting that to be that way, but discover where you are in the path of your life, at each moment, because each moment will be different, and see for yourselves, what happens? Thank you. It's just uh, sit in silence for a couple of moments.